It was February, the height of the Tasmanian summer. The last of the tea tree was flowering, and it was still a month before the destiny of this virus became obvious to us, although we probably should have already guessed. I slung a backpack over my shoulders and rose up onto the plateau behind my home, egged on by the view of the escarpment that I have from my outhouse. Once there, I pitched my tent between two tarns and made a cup of tea. Then, energised, I went for a long walk to the southwest, along that landscape of contiguous openness, fenceless, mostly trackless. I let go of way markers and wandered along a sequence of unknown routes, across the vast expanse of boulder, bog and shrubs, into that panorama of rock and sky that I know so well now. No plan. No agenda. No companion. No provisions. Just a single human in the enormity of an unpopulated environment. This is my favourite feeling in the world. Being alone in the bush is often as much as I want from life. I looked out towards the mountainous district called Jerusalem from a spiky outcrop of rock decorated by shaggy lichen with fluorescent colouring. Imaginary journeys traced themselves out across this inexhaustible territory until eventually the world started to submerge in the deeper colours of sunset, the tender hues of crimson and blue. And so I turned back to my tent, singing and dancing as I went. And just before night fell, I was changing into my long johns in the wide open space when an aeroplane came into view. A commercial flight, heading north, glinting hot white, Strange as it may seem, looking up at a machine with the capacity to go anywhere within some 10,000 kilometres or so, I felt that I inhabited a less limited space than whoever was a passenger on that plane. Something about operating on my own itinerary, powered by my own steam, suggested that I had the greater liberty. And so I puffed out my chest. I was reliant upon nothing, no one. I carried everything I needed to keep me warm, sheltered, well-fed and entertained. Proudly, I lit up another cupful of metho and brewed a peppermint tea, crawled into my sleeping bag under the tarpaulin covering of my tent, read, pondered and slept with the great contentment of one who is independent. Little did I know then that soon the world would change. That I'd be asking new questions with the next season.
I'm fortunate to know geniuses who understand the subtle conditions that come together to form the magic of musical composition. Equally, I have the luck to count as mates some people who comprehend the intricate inner workings of the mechanical engine. All this is knowledge that eludes me. Music and machines both have the ability to delight me, and they both have the capacity, metaphorically or literally, to transport me. But I have not yet dedicated any study to these sciences, and the processes by which they function are pretty well mysterious to me. A song on the sitar or the clarinet is as secretive as the way the automobile propels itself. I have lately come to think of a car as something that has been born of a strange dream, something that can and ought to be a mythical object, like a golden flute, or a jet-black equestrian statuette. I live in the bush, in an old train carriage, which, of course, used to be a form of transport in itself. The history of this carriage has been unknown to me until now, although I'm starting to learn some details about its past. Nevertheless, I'm mostly left to invent the tales of those who travelled in it before me. I imagine a family of five, chugging through a cutting of chocolate-coloured rock, who have a broad blue band of sea suddenly appear at their window. They are each overcome with an idiosyncratic excitement for a holiday, a taste for this escapade. For the children, this brief assembly of colour and light will create a memory on which their identities will stand throughout their adulthoods. Journeys, after all, are the blueprints of all stories. The carriage is picturesque, decorated with rust-red lead paint. Its curved and corrugated roof sends raindrops down to the deck in shoots and fixes them like rivets. It sits snug against a backdrop of pale gums. Anyone can see that the train has stories ingrained into its framework. But what about the white sedan parked next to it? This is one of the most common vehicles on the road, a 20-year-old Toyota Camry with no defining features to make it stand out at all. Yet in the last two years, I have taken that vehicle countless places. It's travelled 50-odd thousand kilometres, bearing numerous passengers on adventures of various kinds. I close my eyes and bring up an image of the Camry in front of the lighthouse keeper's cottage at Cape de Coudy on Kangaroo Island. It has just transported the two of us on a gorgeous adventure across southeastern Australia. For an hour it sat in the belly of a ferry before being let out onto the island, where in the late evening light I drove us against the sun's rays and the prevailing wind towards the southwestern cape. Evening was enveloping us. We were being swallowed by eucalypt shadows. A kestrel was in the middle of the road, its claws inside a marsupial carcass. It was desperate to take its dinner, but decided that the giant white ship sailing down the asphalt sea towards it was dangerous enough to abandon it. 
It hovered over the top of the vehicle as we slowly passed through. And that night we settled into the cottage for well-deserved rest. Gusts of great force arrived from the abyss of ocean around us. We were comfortably ensconced in sandstone, but the car was left exposed out the front and in the morning wore a casing of sand and gravel. As the sun rose, it was as though it had been encrusted in jewels, decorated for a Mughal emperor. It cast a lumpish shadow of itself, like a puma ready to pounce, its power bound within itself for the time being, but waiting to be released. I marvelled at it then, on that trip, at the way it took the two of us 3,000 kilometres into parts unknown and back again. But now, somewhere deep in the inner sanctum of that car, beneath the Camry's bonnet, a simple metal frame has cracked, and the crucial liquids of the engine system are contaminated, or no longer as potent as they once were, or something like that. Something's nibbled on my head crusket. I think that's what the mechanic said. <laughs> In other words, the car's pretty well cooked. And it seems that I shan't be driving it for too many more kilometres. Few new varying views will be seen through its windows at high speed as I sit at its steering wheel, piloting it along highways towards some remote location that holds a promise of adventure. Like a choir, a car demands harmony from many functioning parts. There have been times at the helm of the Camry when I have tried to imagine myself part of the system, like we are a hybrid beast, a centaur made of half car rather than half horse. A bit like a horse, a car is a vector. It is a machine defined by movement. I'm often amazed at the advertisements and even the brand names of models of vehicles. Liberty comes to mind as an obvious one. But I'm more stunned, I guess, by the cars that appropriate the names of nomadic peoples, like the manufacturers who have named their cars after the Tuareg of the Sahara or the Kashgai of Central Asia. I'm not convinced that cars hold the essence of travel. But many are those of us who have built our dreams around them. Our cities, and our economies, and our ideas of freedom. That Camry next to my train carriage can be seen as a capsule for travel through space and time. But it seems that it only has a few more journeys left in it. And then, like a human whose soul has seeped away... It will be reduced to scrap. Like the train carriage, it will only be an oddly shaped shell of something that once travelled far and wide. Only I don't think that I really want to live inside a Toyota Camry.
Some years ago, I took a midnight train out of Athens. I'd been seeing a woman there, and she had helped me pull together provisions from the local market and then loaded me up with boiled eggs and several jars of olives from her grandmother's grove. I've never had a heavier backpack in my life. The night that I left, we went out for wine in a narrow stoa, and I could barely fit in. And walking through the city streets, I saw myself as perhaps my lover had seen me all along. Totally ridiculous. Letting go of so many good things to wander off for a week-long hike in the country's north. And then to continue travelling for the next few months. Not knowing what I would find, or why. That night's overcrowded train ride was somewhat less comfortable than the nights I'd spent in the previous fortnight. Now I was folded up against an out-of-order toilet in the space between the carriages. I barely slept, and in the morning disembarked and breakfasted on boiled eggs in the shadow of Mount Pelion, and then began climbing up to the haunts of the original centaur. At camp that evening... I felt like such a creature, roaming around the woods, solitary and half-wild, unable to relate to the rest of the world and the comforts that they seek. And I suppose I was a little bit pleased with that. There's a stereotype, in Australia at least, of the self-made or self-contained man, the solitary traveller who lives by his wits and his skills, with billion swag, a jack-of-all-trades who can look after himself. I use the male pronouns because it seems always to be a man. And this is the context in which I grew up. Without too much overt pressure, but nevertheless with enough self-awareness to know that I didn't really fit that bill of the masculine Australian. And as an adolescent, I pushed back pretty hard against this image but I've noticed that over the last few years I've inadvertently taken on a few elements from this cliché. My favourite activities are those that can be done alone, with just pen and paper or boots and a backpack. Just myself and my infinite thoughts. That habit of pushing people away is part of my attempt at an untrammeled existence, a life in which I do not need to ask for too much permission to achieve the strange priorities that stir me. I still believe in it somewhat, my stubborn need to pursue unusual ambitions. Being a writer, for me at least, requires hefty doses of solitude. The simplicity of this life, if nothing else, is helpful. It certainly has had its advantages in the current situation but I'm not oblivious to the possible side effects. And I suspect it has also been a part of some of the hurt I've wrought along the way. Only recently was I reminded that isolation is not something that happens only physically. There is an emotional isolation we can create for ourselves, and perhaps do so as a compromise, so that we can live one or another way but it is certainly a compromise. That Greek woman who I had as a lover for a while made fun of me for all this. She saw it as a flaw, perhaps something she could fix, 
but a silly characteristic and someone who she otherwise quite liked, I think. Eventually, after several attempts on both sides of the world, she gave up on me. And fair enough. She was neither the first nor the last to do so. I never told her then, but some days after my train ride out of Athens, when the Greek walking track I was supposed to take petered out in an overgrown orchard, I disbanded one leg of the trip, hitchhiked to a train station, and got a ticket for the next trailhead. But briefly I did think I could turn back and make a different sort of journey for myself. Yet soon enough I was on the next mountain. And so I let myself digest the thought of that life in a solitary situation over the subsequent days. The next night I was perched on the slopes of Mount Kisavos. Some stockkeepers came wandering through. Three Albanian men with a thousand goats. I had a halting conversation in broken Greek with them. They asked me, Puine taparesu? Where are your mates? Where's your mob? And meekly I replied, Then echo. I don't have. And they shook their heads sadly and drove their goats onwards, leaving me alone, yet again, in my tent, with a book. I dreamed that I packed up the car for a short drive and never stopped. I dreamed of a life that was spontaneous and solitary, where I needed nothing more than a pair of sandals and a canvas tent. A life lived on the banks of lakes or on the shores of beaches, cooking up my evening grub in the bachelor's pot of my transier stove. When the time came to roam, I turned down every spur road to see what was there, wandered down bush tracks I hadn't visited before, turned the music up loud on winding coastal highways, wound down the windows to take in the mountain air. My curiosity could not be abated. Each corner I turned could offer up something entirely new, and I travelled this island of mine in a great aura of liberty in complete independence. But no. The liberty I describe is fueled by petrol, powered by the combustion of a material that begins as crude oil, drawn from the earth somewhere in Texas, maybe, or the Middle East. It is built upon an economic scheme of enormous complexity, enforced by policies which have deep roots that penetrate centuries of history. We also know that this same system spreads its invisible tentacles into the atmosphere, 
changing the conditions of air and water, affecting the species with whom we share this planet at this time. In fact, I can't begin to think of all the hands that work together across innumerable nations, pulling together a great assortment of raw material to make my automobile. On the road in this way, if you really think about it, the journeys multiply, become more convoluted. The car itself is the culmination of countless stories, as well as the source of many more. So nowadays when I drive, I find myself thinking of all this as part of my manifest. The whole earth in the front seat as a fellow passenger. Someone recently suggested to me that it's as if we drive on a bitumen-covered supply chain. Only the metaphor of the chain doesn't cut it for me. It's too simplistic. If this economic model is a chain, then the links are layered weirdly like something out of M.C. Escher's sketches. All our lives overlap too much for that. Our choices knock back and forth into each other. I prefer the feeling that I get from the original Greek. Economy and ecology are both derived from the word oikos, which in its essence means household which captures the truth of the mess of relationships in which we live, mixed up as we are with all the species of the earth, whether we like it or not. I reckon it's about time that we started to see ourselves as part of a global household, knowing that the strangers who live in other rooms are affected by us, as their circumstances also make a difference to our lives. To pretend that we live entirely apart from one another is a delusion, a dangerous one, one that only suits people whose lives are built upon a lack of awareness of those whose work takes place on a little seen stage, who don't think much of the people who construct the vast majority of the world. And this is among the themes I'm starting to see in the midst of the situation imposed upon us by the pandemic. The evidence increasingly demonstrates that independence and individuality are not entirely useful traits. Those who are most fiercely devoted to doing whatever they want, whenever they want, are causing the worst mischief right now, all around the world. Trust me, I understand the need to show a little bit of individual flair, or to be sceptical and critical. But I wonder what would really happen to the stubborn whingers if we left them to their own devices in the midst of an apocalypse. Because it strikes me that, even from the perspective of a devoted survivalist, you know, the kind who have a million cans of beans in their bunker somewhere, it doesn't make sense to go it alone. Humans, for better or for worse, have evolved not to be solitary creatures. We are social, each playing a role, chipping in, sharing skills and stories. The society that works best, as far as I can see, is cooperative rather than competitive, especially when threatened. We are interdependent, heavily entwined with creatures we may not know or understand, housemates who we never see.
A woman once told me of her father's vision. His pursuit of a mirage in the Australian desert. His was the frontiersman's dream. As a young fellow, he woke up in the middle of the night with a thirst for redemption of some kind. So he got into his land cruiser and drove due west till the dawn had risen behind him. Then the car broke down, sputtered and spewed up smoke. So he got out and walked step by step leaving boot prints in the sand as it heated up in the orange sun. There was a rucksack thrown over his shoulder with a bit of tucker in it, a bit of tucker and a canteen. His daughter said she didn't think she'd ever know what he reckoned his destination was going to be. But she supposed it was something spiritual, like a moment of epiphany some encounter with destiny, the chance to face something greater than himself. So off he went as the sun positioned itself right over his head and baked the brains inside his cranium. (laughs) Maybe a gasket cracked up there as well. The crucial neurological fluids overheated and became volatile. This bloke kept vaguely walking, like a cow in front of an invisible drover. A vindictive one. She said he couldn't remember which bit fell apart first. But he came a gutsa, she said. Delirious and damaged, he laid out on the desert sands, in pain and irradiated by the sun. Helpless, immobile. And then from the immeasurable brightness came a thousand fragmented specks of shadow. They descended on his body and held it together, cooled his skin, and made his muscles heal. It was a flock of budgerigars. And after they gave their therapeutic attentions to his body, they thronged around his brain and put that back together as well. The daughter of this man finished up her story by saying as far as she had understood, her father realised that though he had been pushed to seek out some boundaries to cross in the wilderness, there were many parts unexplored within himself. He was a frontiersman, yet his own borders were closed and the terrain that he needed to cross was not so much out in the desert, but in some internal country. So he let the budgies fix him up, and then went back east, and faced what needed to be seen to next. I've needed plenty of help in the past few weeks with my car up shit creek and all, A handful of mates have helped out with this, even though I'm not the best or easiest person to assist in this matter, especially since I've started seeing cars as talismanic objects and would thus rather drive a sun chariot rather than just another Camry. My mate Mitch lives in rainforest on the other side of the river. I occasionally find myself by the fire in his shed, 
fixing lethal drinks and yakking away. The content of our conversations, a mixture of bullshit and snippets of wisdom and vulnerability. He's been helping me try and resurrect my car, or at least make sure that I don't spend a mozza on some new second-hand shit heap that's going to burst its gaskets as soon as I buy it. Recently, during an intermission in our mechanical endeavours, I mentioned that I've been wondering about who I am going to be as an older man. That is, who I'm becoming now, as I make certain decisions at this stage of the game, here in my thirties. I admitted that I could see myself settling into habits, developing a solitary and unsociable life, irascible as a tiger snake, all sealed up like some crotchety old bugger in his ramshackle highland hut, not wanting visitors. Just leave me be. Let me rot up here all alone. Cradling his keep cup of Bundy and Cola, Mitch replied with a certain snap in his voice. Don't, mate. Don't turn into that person. Over the past few weeks I've been thinking of those people who feel alone in this time, especially those who are sick, or living under restrictions, or those who are worried about how they're going to make a buck, who believe that they have no one to turn to for help. Makes me all the more relieved that despite my distant address and all the things I've done to push people away over the years. I still know that I have good mates about. I'm thankful for them all. And I hope that occasionally I am that person for someone else as well. Someone helpful. That night I borrowed Mitch's rattling pink bicycle and rode the 10 or 12 k's back home down a muddy gravel road in the dark, swerving every few minutes to avoid skittish marsupials. And coming out of the forest and onto the farm roads, the amphitheatre of mountains that surrounds my home appeared, dark silhouettes against a darkening sky. There was a planet perched upon the plateau, and bats raced me through the village with its Sunday night silence. and back into this train carriage that I rent, where I face almost all the issues of my life alone. To be honest, it's a space that I'm struggling to share these days, even when mates come to visit. Here I jealously guard my solitary self, or some semblance of it. But some nights, from somewhere, I hear an echo saying, You must let go. Let others in. Change some of these habits if need be. Face your sense of failure and use it like yeast in the dough of your being. Take off the facade that makes you always want to be at your very best. Learn what you can give. Relinquish the illusion of your independence. 
as one of my favourite writers put it, everything is connected across space and time. To begin to understand these intricate relationships is to acknowledge the many responsibilities we have to one another across continents and genera and centuries. But it also helps us to appreciate something of the essence of the beauty of life.